Well, I'd invite you to open your Bible once again to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 17 through 21. Revelation chapter 19, verses 17 through 21. And John writes, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The title of the message this morning, The Return of the King and the Peril of Not Knowing Him Truly. The return of the king and the peril of not knowing him truly. The text we've just read brings us to the biblical doctrine of the return of Christ. Now doctrine, I'll remind you, is given to us not that we fill the mind with all kinds of knowledge, but doctrine is given for us to live upon. Writing in the 16th century, William Ames Define theology and doctrine as the teaching of living unto God. So if in our study of doctrine and theology it leaves us with just a lot of knowledge about God, well, we've not fully understood what doctrine and theology is. Doctrine and theology is for living unto God, taking these truths, and how do they rearrange our lives in light of them? We're living in a day where the Biblical doctrine of the return of Christ is not lived upon. We live in a day today where the biblical doctrine of the return of Christ is treated either like a hobby of trying to figure out the who, what, when, where, why. We make it our great interest in the doctrine of the end time to, to try to know what really only God can know. Or the other one is we seem to treat it as insignificant. What I mean by that is the thinking is, well, I mean, we've been talking about the return of Christ for 2,000 years. Every generation thinks that, oh, he's near. Every generation has been convinced. Oh, we're, it will come soon. And here we are 2,000 years. And so the thinking often comes, well, the doctrine of the return of Christ may be of really no consequence to me. We've been waiting a long time, probably not going to come in my lifetime, and so we spend little time thinking about it. And I wonder if you fall into one of those two categories. You've made it a hobby of great interest, the who, what, when, where, why, how, trying to connect all these dots. 
or you've made it something of insignificance. I, I believe it's going to happen, but they've been waiting for 2,000 years. And I mean, the likelihood of it happening in my lifetime, the percentages aren't great. Which one of those do you lean towards? The problem with both of these errors is that we, we tend to handle the doctrine of the return of Christ in terms of us, how they affect us. When Christ returns, I get to exit this life. I get to exit the hardships. I get to exit. It's about me exiting all the troubles and hardships. And, and there's truth to that. But that's not primarily what the return of Christ is about. My burden this morning as we look at the text we've just read is that we wrestle with the implications, not as they pertain to us primarily, but what is the purpose of Christ's return and God's purposes? So that the biblical doctrine of the return of Christ will, will think biblically about it, God-centered thoughts about it, and in turn live upon it in a way that is helpful to us. So that the return of Christ becomes more than just an interesting hobby or an insignificant reality that I believe is going to happen, but probably not in my lifetime, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. The doctrine of the return of Christ, like all other doctrines, is the teaching of God for the people of God to live upon. And our prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit of God would help us to do just that. But in order for us to begin to to think these kinds of thoughts about this text, we've got to go back to last week. We've got to go back for just a moment and look at the text we were in last week because this portion of Revelation chapter 9 is divided into three sections. And you, you can pick up on them very neatly. They all begin with either then or and I saw. So last week we were looking at verses 11 through 16 where John writes... Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And then verse 17, we're introduced to the, the next section. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And then if you look down at verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse. And so last Lord's Day, we looked at the first of those sections, verses 11 through 16. And it's the section, if you remember I told you, with all the fascinating things that we just read in verses 17 through 21, John is not fascinated by those things. That's not a hobby for him. He's fascinated by what he reads in verses 11 through 16, which is description of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rider on the white horse, it's Christ. And in spite of all the horrors that we read about in verses 17 through 21, and that we'll continue to see into chapter 20, what captivates John, his interest, is the extraordinary description of the Lord Jesus Christ. Far more important than understanding what Christ is going to do is knowing Christ himself. And I'm convinced that's what John is captivated by. And the same must be true for us. When it comes to the biblical doctrine of the return of Christ, we must be captivated not by what he's doing primarily, but by who he is. And who is he? The text revealed to us last week. Christ is the faithful and the true. Christ is the word of God. 
Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Christ is the one who has a name that only he knows. And we broke down each and every one of the beauty and the majesty of those titles. And Christ has some well over 200 titles in the Bible. And these right here are given specifically contextually because these are, these are fundamental truths about Christ. As the church eyes the return of Jesus Christ, there's going to be some unsettling things. Our confidence cannot be in understanding the who, what, when, where, why and trying to figure out where I position in that. Our hope must be in the rider on the horse, the one who is the word of God, who is the faithful and true, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, who is the one who has a name that no one knows but himself, meaning take everything you know about Jesus and you still, you know, you have like a, a drop in the ocean compared to the fullness of who Christ is. It's more important than ever as we continue our march through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has been from chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not about events, fundamentally. It's about Christ. And it's more important than ever that we, as we march toward these events in this book, that we know Christ ourselves. Because the next things that John sees are incredibly grim and grotesque. And if we don't ask this question as we read, we're not reading correctly. The question being, am I prepared to meet this living God who is coming to do this in verses 17 through 21 and beyond, who elsewhere in the Bible is described as a consuming fire am i prepared to stand face to face with this one who's about to do these things to these enemies that are even far greater than i and the answer to that question is only in the rider in the white horse can i stand only in the faithful and true the word of god the king of kings and lord of lords and the one who has a name greater than I could ever imagine. No one knows but himself. And so though John's eyes are preoccupied with Jesus, and with both eyes fixed upon him, now we're ready to take a look at what comes next. Because John sees other things. But we've got to see these other things in light of a preoccupation, a clinging to Jesus. In verse 17, John says, as I see Christ and I'm captivated by him. I, I also see, verse 17, an angel standing in the sun. The sun drawing attention to the angel, putting him kind of in the spotlight, if you will. The, the imagery here signifies whatever this angel is about to do, it's massively significant. The spotlight is on him. And this angel has something very important to say about the king on the white horse and about his final battle with his enemies. There's two things I want us to think about this morning when it comes to the biblical doctrine of the return of Christ. And the first is this. Jesus Christ returns to make 
his name known. You see, the return of Christ is about Christ. It's not first and foremost about me. Again, don't read into that that I'm saying that there's no application to me, that I don't benefit from this. But the, as all doctrines in the Bible, Christ comes back to address those who have refused his name. And now he's going to make his name known. Notice what he says in verses 17 and 18. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of heroes and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So the angel, the spotlight's on him, and with a loud voice, amplified, what does he, what does he cry out? Birds of the air, you are now invited to the great supper of God. What in the world? What's he talking about? Well, obviously what we have here is what we've seen all throughout the book of Revelation. Symbolic language. This is symbolism. We've seen it all throughout the book of Revelation because going back to our very first message, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And the hallmark of apocalyptic literature is God communicates awesome truths through symbols, through images, through pictures. And so in order for us to benefit from what it is God is revealing about himself, about Christ, about the doctrine of the return of Christ, we've got to pick up on the symbolism. And how do we do that? Do we just put it on our thinking? No. We go back to the Old Testament. There's nothing in these symbolisms that hasn't been defined for us previously. And the fact is, when you go back to the Old Testament, there are at least 12 instances in Scripture where the imagery is found, where the birds of the air are called down to feed on the flesh of carcasses. And in most of those instances, it's intended to be a graphic description of total destruction, of humiliation. I mean, what's more humiliating than the strong being killed and the birds of the air come and feast on your flesh? It's a picture of total defeat and humiliation. And there are two particular Old Testament texts that I think are helpful to help us understand what's happening here. 1 Samuel 17 is probably the most obvious. Maybe it comes to your mind. The story of David and Goliath. You remember Goliath, the great champion of the Philistines who arrogantly defies God and defies the people of God. And then there's little young David, the little country boy with a ruddy complexion. He steps up and says, I'll defend the name of God. All he's got is a sling. They try to put on the king's armor, but it's too big for him. I mean, he's a kid. He's stumbling around in it. He can't possibly go to battle against Goliath in this. So he's too young, he's too slender. He throws the armor away, he picks up five stones and goes into battle with Goliath. And David says to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verse 46, this day 
the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. There it is. But listen to this. Why? That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give it into our hand. You see, it was the feasting on the flesh of Goliath and the Philistines by the birds was a picture of total defeat and humiliation that though as powerful as that nation was and that individual was, the God of Israel is omnipotently powerful. And when you see the birds feasting on their flesh, getting fattened on their flesh, you bend the knee to the God of Israel. A second place where we, we find the symbolism is Ezekiel chapter 39. The prophet Ezekiel there is foretelling a coming judgment of God in which the, the birds of prey will feed upon the flesh of Israel's enemies that God defeats for them. And the text reads, Ezekiel 39, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. This is the Lord speaking. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he-goats, of bulls, and of, of the fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled. Didn't we read that in the closing verse of chapter 19? You shall eat fat until you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers and mighty men, all kinds of warriors, doesn't that sound like the language that John is using in, in Revelation 19? He's got these things in mind as he's, he's describing these visions. And then Ezekiel 39 says this, In doing so, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. And the house of Israel shall know I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Now, these are just two passages of many we could have turned to, but I think they're enough to instruct us to the meaning of the angel's announcement there in the text in chapter 19. Just like God brought Goliath down, and just like God brought Israel's enemies down, so too Christ is going to bring all who have rejected him, who don't know his name truly, those who don't know him, as the word of God. Those who've not bent the knee to him as the king of kings and lord of lords. Bent the knee and surrender. He is God's faithful and true. And he is the one who has a name that only he knows. They will be utterly defeated and humiliated. Pictured in the calling of the birds. Come and fatten your flesh. It's the peril of those who don't know the name of Christ truly. 
And just as we read in 1 Samuel 17 and Ezekiel 39, the purpose of this is that God would make Christ's name known. We've been introduced since chapters 12 and 13 to the, the great dragon and his allies, the, the beast of the air, the beast of the water, the false prophet. And if you think back, we were reminded how the dragon is, is anti-God, anti-Christ, his hatred of Christ. And these allies, whether political involvement or even a false religion, the false prophet, who may use the name of Christ as a, sure, we talk about Christ too, but not in the sense of knowing, loving, serving, treasuring Christ as Paul says, all in all. He's everything. You may know things about him. You may know gospel things about him. You may be able to write theology books about Christ. But do you truly, truly here in your life know the doctrine of Christ? Do you live upon? He is God's faithful and true. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the word of God, the God's self-revelation of himself to us and the one who has a name that no one knows but himself. There's nowhere else for you to go to try to find sufficiency that can't be found in Christ. He is it all. And if we've been swayed by these enemies, even though we may carry the name of Christ with us, the return of Christ is, you will know the name of Christ when you see what I do to those who've rejected me. Let me pause here for a moment. Why this graphic, gruesome picture of total defeat and humiliation? Why? It's because God is holy. He's one of a kind in His glory and greatness. We read this morning in our prayer time, his greatness is beyond limits, beyond boundaries. Like standing on the edge of the shore and looking out into the ocean, as far out as you can see, as far left as you can see, as far right as you can see. And all we really know about God is we tip our toes into the water or maybe you go ankle deep. And we think, I know God. I know Christ. When his greatness goes infinitely. God is holy, he's eternal, he's incomprehensible, he's self-sufficient, he's righteous, he's just, and he's jealous about himself. He's jealous about these things about himself. And the Bible is also clear, not just about who God is, it is clear that the God who is entirely self-sufficient needs nothing from anyone or anything. That's the definition of self-sufficiency. He needs nothing. So why are we here? If before creation, the self-sufficient God who found infinite pleasure and delight in himself and his triune existence needed nothing, we just read, right, to our kids. God's speaking all these things into existence and the pinnacle of his creative genius is you and I. And Why are we here? Obviously not to fill some void in God. No, God created us to share 
and the glory and greatness that he takes in himself with other image bearers that we would share in that delight in him. That he would be as all in all to us as he is all in all to himself. And that we would know him and love him and treasure him and desire him above all things as our only sufficiency. And in doing so, we reflect his glory. That's how we glorify God. But here's something else the Bible tells us. It tells us who God is. It tells us he's self-sufficient, yet he made us. The Bible is all so clear. Every one of us have rejected the God who made us. The God who made us to find our all in all in him, we've said no thanks. We don't want you to be supreme and preeminent and central to our lives. We, don't, we, we reject your claim that you alone are worthy, Father, Son, and Spirit. We find delight and treasure in other things. And that's the, the very definition of what sin is. That's, that's the horror of the evil of sin. Sin is the blaspheming of God's name by putting someone else, maybe ourselves, or something else in that place of central preeminence and supremacy where only God deserves to be. And the Bible says we have all done that. And then the Bible goes on to say that Psalm chapter 5, God hates all evildoers. The question gets asked, or the, the statement, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. Go read Psalm 5. God says, and I quote, I hate all evildoers. Why? It is the height and pinnacle of evil to take your eyes off of me. When I created you for me, to know me, to share in my delight in myself, and for you to rob me of that and go heap that onto someone or something else. And because God is holy and righteous, he can't allow such evil to go unpunished. And that leads us to the vision here of Revelation chapter 19. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Who's on the horse? It's Christ. The word of God. The revelation of God to us. And the battle lines are drawn here. We have rejected God and his name and his son and his name and heaped that on somebody else. And now Christ comes in this passage. You've denied my name. You will know my name when I get done. The return of Christ is about the name of Christ, which brings us to the second thing I want us to see in this passage. How does Christ make his name known in his return? And it is by triumphing over every one of those enemies and every one of their idols. He conquers every one of them in ultimate defeat and ultimate humiliation. And this is that third image here. We've seen the names of Christ. It's all about Him. And we've seen the angel who says, 
He's coming. And he's calling down the birds, get ready. Because for all who have denied the name of God and denied the name of Christ, you're about to get fat over what our returning king does. And what does he do? That's the third vision in verses 19 through 21. He triumphs over every one of these enemies. The beast, the false prophets. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all those birds were gorged, were filled with their flesh. What's going on here? John sees the battle lines are drawn in verse 19. All those who've rejected Christ as the faithful and true, the word of God, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who has a name that no one knows but himself, and all the other names, the greatness that Christ is on one side, and they're ready to make war because Christ on his white horse is ready to come and to do battle. And so you have the picture here, these two forces lined up together to make war. And what we have here is something we've seen before. It's the Battle of Armageddon. But keep in mind, we've seen this before. The book of Revelation is cyclical, right? We've been seeing the same series of events over and over and over. And here we are in another cycle of circles, another cycle of visions, We've seen the Battle of Armageddon referenced previously, most recently in chapter 16. So what do we have here? Is this a second Armageddon? No. It's, the, it's exactly what we saw in chapter 16 and in previous ones, but it's a fuller expression of it. Remember, it's like looking at a football game. You're seeing different camera angles. You're seeing different hits. You're seeing different things from different angles. And all of a sudden, you get a fuller picture here. And what we have here in this battle of, between the Lamb and the forces of his enemies is Armageddon. It's a symbolic battle between good and evil. And notice, for all the magnitude, all the expectations of Armageddon, right? You get to verse 19, and even in some of our hobbies where we try to connect all the dots, we have in our minds these, these strategies of nations coming together. Against... Read the text. For all the magnitude of this final battle between the Christ and the forces of evil, there's no battle at all. And this is how Christ makes his name known. There's no battle. Notice how these great enemies of God who have rejected him and tried to sway his people to drift away from him, notice how they are dispensed with in one verse of Scripture. One verse, verse 20, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive in a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And just like that, 
these agents of Satan who have terrorized the people of God throughout the, the age of, uh, between Christ's re, uh, uh, ascension and re, uh, until his return, right, this whole period of time, these who have terrorized God's people and then influenced Christ's people, uh, maybe to drift away from Christ. And we've had to keep our eyes upon Jesus to, to stay resolved and stay faithful to the faithful and true. Jesus comes and instantaneously he destroys them. He humiliates them. There is no question who the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is. This is not a battle. Sometimes the good guys are winning. Sometimes the good guys are winning. Sometimes the bad guys are winning. It's back and forth. And ultimately, finally, Jesus is going to outmaneuver them who is our Christ? That's why we got to go back to verses 11. He is the faithful and true. He's the Genesis 3.15, the one who will stomp the head definitively. And he did that at the cross. He's the, the word of God, omnipotent in power. Do we really believe that the enemies of God are going to put up a fight against Christ in his return? He's the king of kings and lord of lords. We're told in Philippians, Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Now for us, we pray it will be willingly because we admire and love and treasure him. But for his enemies, by omnipotent power, they will be forced to the knee and will bend the knee to Jesus Christ. And they, there won't be a fight. So contrary to how oftentimes the battle of Armageddon is portrayed, it, it, it reads well in novels and in books and on movies. This isn't going to be much of a movie. It's going to be a quick movie. But to the glory of Christ, it's a quick movie. It's not going to be enemies hovering over a Mac trying to strategically outmaneuver one another. Christ returns and with one word, the sword of his mouth, all his enemies are defeated instantaneously. Everything that those seven churches in Asia Minor Remember the persecution, the struggle, all that they were going through. Some were drifting away from Christ, faithfulness to the gospel. They were adding to Christ plus works. You had the Nicolaitans who were coming in. You had false teachers who were coming in and polluting the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the faithful and true, His life, His death, His resurrection, he is all. And a life lived unto him faithfully is what the gospel is all about. And yet there's all these enemies and obstacles and difficulties that we ourselves face, even, even this day. They reject his name, but Jesus deals with them in one single verse. It reminds me of, of even what we read in Psalm 1. Jesus comes and he blows them away. They're like chaff. To you and I, these enemies of God, they're weighty. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. That's why the Christian life, is there's temptation. That's why we constantly feel the tension to drift away from Christ. And that's why even when we hear a call back to Christ, just pure Christ alone, there's even some tension in our soul. No, 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 no. You're oversimplifying. That's not enough. No, no, no. 
That is the gospel. It is. Christ is the faithful and true. The word of God. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who has a name that whatever you think you know about Jesus, you're, you're just scratching the surface. He's everything. Return to him. They're weighty to us, these enemies, but to Christ. They're weightless in comparison. And it's in the defeat of these enemies. They may have rejected Jesus in this life. He's not the faithful and true. He's not the word of God. He's not the king of kings and lord of lords. He's not this one who has this name. But I promise you, after this defeat, they will know the name of Jesus. But it's too late. What we have in Revelation 19 is a marvelous picture of Christ and Christ's triumph over his enemies who will refuse to know him and to know him truly. That's what Armageddon's about. It's about the glory of Christ. It's about his name. It's not about us. The battle of Armageddon is about making the glory and the name of Christ all. And notice that the humans who aligned themselves with both the, the, the beasts, they are also killed. If we fall prey to the enemy's tactics of us drifting away from Christ, just as the enemies themselves will be destroyed, the text says the humans who align themselves with that will be likewise destroyed. So, the biblical doctrine of the return of Christ, it's about Christ. It's about him making his name known, which it, it's always, that's the doctrine of Christ. That's the doctrine of God, making God known. The doctrine of the return of Christ falls right in line with that. But it is a grim passage. And I want to close just with Closing thought. This grotesque defeat and humiliation at the hands of King Jesus who returns to do this to those who refuse his name truly. There's really only two ways to avoid this. The first way is you have to live an absolutely perfect sinless life. If when King Jesus returns, you are found to be as perfect and holy and righteous, never a wicked thought, never a wayward word, every motive of your life has always been holy and righteous, and every action you've ever done has been in perfect alignment with the will of God, which there's the mind of God that's revealed in Scripture, and then there's the will of God that belongs to him. So I guess the point is, this one doesn't work for any of us. None of us can be found perfect. And the Bible says in Romans 3 anyway, there's none righteous, no, not one. That would have been one way to flee this Christ or to avoid the destruction to come. The only other way is to flee to the rider on the white horse while there's still time. Flee to the one who 
is faithful and true, is the word of God, is the King of kings and Lord of lords, is all in all with a name that you take everything you think you know about Jesus and it's like a drop in the bucket. He is so far beyond. Flee to him and put your confidence in who he is and who that faithful and true, what he has done. God sent him to do what only God could do, to redeem and save a people through the forgiveness of sins. We sinned against God. God's the one who has to provide the remedy. And that he did through his son Jesus, his life, his death upon the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. Christ did that for a people who could not save themselves. And that's all of us. We've got to see the great irony in these verses as we close out chapter 19. I've referenced it along the way. The great irony is that chapter 19 contrasts two different suppers. And even that's a kind of a subpoint of you've got two different kingdoms, right? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The kingdom of Jerusalem, uh, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Babylon. They're symbolic. The, and within those two, there's two different suppers. Verses 1 through 10. John tells us the great blessing of being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb in which Christ himself is the central figure. And those that are invited to that, we're not just guests, we're the bride by grace. So you got that feast, but you've got to contrast the other feast in chapter 19. The text calls it the supper of God. And here's the irony. In the marriage supper of the Lamb, God issues the invitation by grace to his people. In the supper of God, God extends an invitation to the birds, to the birds of prey. But they're not there as, well, they are there as God's guests. But for everyone who doesn't attend the marriage supper of the Lamb, they go to the supper of God. But they're not there as guests. They're there as the main course. They're there to be devoured and humiliated by the Christ that they've rejected. And according to the closing of this chapter 19, woe to us, woe to any in the seven churches, if we belong to the Goliaths of this world, if we belong to the enemies of this world, if we drift away from Christ, even we can be in attendance on a Sunday morning, but our heart is filled with something other than Christ. We can know a lot of right things about Jesus, but if we don't know him truly, as he's revealed himself, that's why we had to spend last week focusing upon John's preoccupation on the rider on the white horse. He's consumed by that one. Why? He's not putting on a show. Look how spiritual I am. That's his heart. Go back and read John's gospel. He's the beloved disciple who loves Jesus with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in relation to all that this returning Christ is coming to do, his only hope is his love for Jesus. The critical issue for us this morning have you been born again? Have you been given a heart by God to love Jesus in this way? 
Only you can answer that. The new covenant tells us God gives us a heart that will do what the hardened heart cannot do, to love Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is the objective reality of a new heart, that we love Christ the way that John does, that we'd be preoccupied with Christ the way that John does, the way that Paul does, the way that Peter is, the way that all throughout church history, these aren't fanatics, these aren't those on the fringes of Christianity, that's what biblical Christianity is, love for Jesus and who he is. Have you been given that heart and love Christ? And you know Christ in this way. Have you in turn obeyed the gospel? In light of who Christ is, I've repented of all else. My sin, the good and the bad, and I've fled to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what Revelation 19 is about. The King is returning. All that he is and all who claim to know him but don't or have rejected him altogether will be defeated in a flash. If you're here this morning and, man, you know, I know a lot about Jesus, but I don't know that I truly know him and treasure him. You don't have to wait to talk to me. Feel free to talk to me. You don't have to wait for a time of prayer in just a moment. You don't have to wait till we sing. Right now, you flee to Christ. Right now, you turn from all else and you flee to him. Oh, Jesus, you alone are my only hope. Are you born again? And do you love Jesus in this way? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the rider on the white horse who is the word of God, who is God himself. It is a fearful thing to fall into his hands without knowing Christ truly. Which supper will you partake in? Right now, based on your love for Jesus, which supper? Repent while it's still the day of grace.